0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's
1: How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today's episode is a sponsored one. It's sponsored by the all-new 2020 Ford Explorer. They asked us to do something that was related in some way to exploration and then left it totally up to us. How did we want to interpret that? So, of course, we had a big pile of ideas at the ready that fit in some way for that theme, and we finally decided to talk about Jean Barret, who was the first woman known to circumnavigate the globe. But her experience was not just about the travel. Like, a lot of the women travelers that we have talked about were traveling to explore, uh, just mostly because they had disposable income and you know, had the means and the money to to do that kind of thing, and sometimes to do other work uh, alongside all the travel, but, like, the travel was a major piece of it. She was working, and the work she was doing was taking her to places that were totally unexpected for somebody of her gender and her economic class in the 18th century.
0: Jeanne Barret was born on July 27, 1740, to Jean Barret and Jeanne Pochard. They lived in Lacomelle, France, which is roughly 200 miles, that's about 320 kilometers, southeast of Paris. This was a rural agricultural area, and Jeanne's father worked as a day laborer. He did not own any land or always have access to steady work, so the Barret family and others who were similarly situated were some of the poorest people in that part of Europe.
1: We really know almost nothing about her upbringing or her early life, but she might have been trained as an herb woman, so somebody who knew how to grow and forage and prepare medicinal herbs. This is something that she would have learned from other women based on knowledge that was mostly passed down orally.
0: We do know that when she was in her early 20s, Barré started working for a man named Philibert Commerson who was about 12 years older than she was. He was from an affluent family and was formally educated in both medicine and botany. He much preferred botany, though, and he never established a medical practice.
1: Yeah, in the grand scheme of, like, social and economic circumstances, they were nearly opposites. Instead of going into that medical practice, Commerson established a botanical garden in chatillon les dombes in the late 1750s. He visited Voltaire, and one of his colleagues was Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, who is the person who helped establish that system of binomial nomenclature that is still used to classify organisms today, although that uh, system, of course, has evolved a lot since then. Linnaeus secured a commission from the Queen of Sweden for Kommerson to catalogue Mediterranean fish. So, in addition to his work as a botanist, he was also an ichthyologist.
0: So, if Barret was already trained as an herb woman, it would have made a lot of sense for Comerson to hire her. There is a 23 page table of medicinal plants arranged in order of their virtues and according to the healing indications that is among Commerson's papers, which biographer Glynis Ridley suggests was actually Barret's work. If that is correct, and if the knowledge contained in that notebook was something that Barret had already learned before being hired, she would have been a very clear help to Commerson's botany work from day one.
1: But it appears that at, at least at first, on hired beret not as a botany assistant, but as, as a domestic servant. And that would have been more stable and financially lucrative than what the family had been experiencing as day laborers. We don't know exactly when she started working for him. Her formal employment started in 1764, but she seems to have also been working with him in some capacity before that. It's possible that she started working there just after the death of Commerson's wife at the age of 34. That happened shortly after she gave birth to their child. and. It's possible that part of Barret's role working for him was to help care for this newborn.
0: Ultimately, though, the baby was sent to live with an uncle. And at some point, Barret and Commerçon's relationship became more personal rather than employer and employee. In 1764, Barre became pregnant. Unmarried women were legally required to register their pregnancies, including naming the baby's father. Barré did register her pregnancy on August 22, 1764, but she traveled to another town to do it, and she took two men with her as character witnesses. They maintained that she had been assaulted by an unknown man and that that assault had resulted in her pregnancy. This baby was almost certainly commercons, with the character witnesses being a part of an effort to cover up what would have been something truly scandalous if people had actually known the facts of the situation.
1: Barret and Cromerçon moved to Paris together in September of 1764. She was given a salary of 100 livres a year. They lived near the Jardin-le-Roy, or the Royal Gardens, which is today known as the Jardin des Plantes. In January of
0: 1765, Barret surrendered her baby, named Jean-Pierre, to a home for foundling children. Jean-Pierre was placed with a foster family, although he died a couple of years later. The registry of Barret's pregnancy, Jean-Pierre's birth, and his fostering and death are all documented in the historical record. But Barret's and Commerçon's thoughts and feelings on these events really are not part of any of those documents.
1: Within a few months of surrendering Jean-Pierre, Barret and Commerçon were preparing for a voyage around the world— This expedition of exploration and scientific discovery had been authorized by King Louis XV, and it was meant as both an exploratory voyage and a scientific endeavor. Admiral Louis-Antoine Comte de Bougainville, who had served in the Seven Years' War, was in command of 330 men who were divided between two vessels, the Boudouze and the Etoile. In addition to being in command of the expedition as a whole, Bougainville was in command of the Boudouze, and François Chénard de la Girodée was in command of the Etoile.
0: Three scientists had been recruited to participate in this expedition. who who is acting as royal botanist and naturalist, astronomer Pierre-Antoine Veron, and cartographer Charles Routier de Romaville. Among his other duties, Commerson was one of the people helping to plan the expedition's route.
1: Commerçant was given a budget to hire an assistant naturalist to take on this voyage, to help him collect and catalog specimens, and to illustrate what they found, but he could not take Jean Barret, at least not legally. It had been illegal for women to be on French naval ships for anything other than a brief visit since 1689. Officers who broke this rule could be suspended for a month and sailors who broke it could be sentenced to 15 days in chains.
0: There is a lot that we don't know about the dynamics between Commerçon and Barret. There were obvious and meaningful disparities between the two of them, especially when it came to power and wealth stemming from both their relative social class and their genders, and as well as him being her employer. But at the same time, what happens next suggests that Barre was in this relationship willingly. And we're going to get into that after we first pause for a little sponsor break.
1: As they were preparing for their expedition around the world, Philibert Commerson wrote out a will and that bequeathed his actual property to his son, but it also made it clear that all of the women's clothes and similar possessions in his home belonged to his housekeeper, Jean Barret, to whom he left the household furnishings and linens along with 600 livres. The will also gave her the right to live in his home for a year after the date of his death, during which time she would organize his specimens and manuscripts and then send them on to the royal collection. The will makes it sound as though Jean Barret was staying behind while he was going on this expedition, and it also noted that she was sometimes known as Jeanne de Bonifoy. Barret was not staying behind, though. Instead, Commerson maintained that he had not
0: been able to find a workable assistant to go with him on this voyage, in spite of all of his efforts to do so. Then, Jeanne Barret, dressed in men's clothing and using the name Bonnefoy, arrived at the port of Rochefort, maintaining that she was looking for work. Commerson hired the disguised Barret on the spot, and from that point on, for much of the expedition, he consistently referred to her as male. Based on everything we know about the situation, this was a disguise and not a reflection of her gender, so we
1: will keep referring to her as a woman. Uh, this whole ruse seems like kind of a stretch to me. The idea that he would have just hired a random person on the spot, having failed to find somebody that met actual criteria for a a botanist's assistant on this voyage. But it seems like everyone thought that was, uh, it made sense, I guess, that he um, hired an apparently random person at the dock.
0: I feel like this is one of those things where it's, like, the excuse checklist of, like, uh-huh. look, you all know who this is, and I know who this is, and she knows you all know who this is, but we have, um, you know, we've checked all the boxes. For all <laughs> you know, you can say you thought it was a dude the whole time.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is um, this is also really, to me, the moment that if if she had wanted to get out of this situation, it would have been easy enough to not show up. Which definitely would have been a reduction in the uh, in the opportunities that were available to her. She probably would have had to go back home and and try to find some kind of other employment. But this this would have been a, an easier moment for her to kind of slip away if she did not actually want to go on this voyage. So. The Etoile and the Budeus planned to cross the Atlantic separately, traveling southwest across the Atlantic Ocean to rendezvous at Rio in June of 1767. From there, they would sail south along the coast of South America and through the Strait of Magellan. Then they would follow the western coast of South America before turning west to cross the Southern Pacific. Then to return to Europe, they would travel through the East Indies and around the Horn of Africa, then back north obviously back to Europe, and they would make stops all along the way, gathering specimens, making maps, recording the people and places they saw. They would also claim land where they could, and in one case, they would give it up. One stop on the voyage involved surrendering the Falkland Islands to Spain.
0: Commerçant and Barre were to sail aboard the Etoile. When they embarked, Commerson had so much equipment with him that he was given the captain's stateroom as his quarters. The captain's stateroom had its own private bath, which would have made it easier for Barret to conceal her sex while on board.
1: The idea of easy was really relative here, though. For almost two years, Barret maintained a disguise that required her to bind her breasts— Today's chest binders are usually made with synthetic elastic fibers, which have some stretch, but these materials had not been invented yet when Bari was living. She would have been using bandages or strips of cloth, and given the materials that were available at the time, they wouldn't have been very stretchy or giving at all. This would have made this whole process a lot more uncomfortable and difficult, with the bindings also prone to slipping and shifting during the day. Working as
0: Commerçant's assistant also required Barre to do a lot of physical work in all kinds of weather and climate conditions, from the tropics to the far southern tip of South America, which is almost in the uh, Antarctic circle. So, even before accounting for the difficulties of travel and the work itself, Barre's job was inherently uncomfortable, often unpleasant, and very physically demanding.
1: Added to that, there were storms that seriously damaged the ship and periods where they were becalmed and ran out of food, illnesses spread among the crew, and there was intense seasickness at sea, and that often affected both Barre and Commersol. So he was able to spend time out on deck. That uh, a lot of the time will help with seasickness because you can see the way the boat is moving. But Barre didn't have that option. She really had to weather all this in the confines of Commerçon's quarters to try to protect her privacy and her identity. That would not have been a particularly... Comfortable place to try to ride that out,
0: even though Barret meticulously maintained her disguise and Commerçant scrupulously addressed and referred to her as a man. Rumors began to spread throughout the ship that they were carrying a woman in disguise. Uh, And that happened not long after the étoile set sail from Rochefort on December 14th, 1766. And naturally, suspicion fell on Barre, who, among other things, did not have facial hair and didn't use the communal toilet facilities for the crew who shared her rank. Obviously,
1: there are plenty of men who don't have facial hair, but that was one of the things that drew suspicion to her, on March 22nd of 1767, the Etoile crossed from the northern to the southern hemisphere, and the ship's crew had sort of a ritual baptism, in quotation marks, for people who hadn't previously crossed the equator. The details of this hazing ritual differed depending on the person's rank, and for the officer's servants, which was how Barry was classified, it involved being made to drop into a pool made of a sailcloth that was being dragged alongside the ship. The people who were having to do this were also blackened with soot and prevented from getting out of the water. And because of all this water and mess involved, the men who were being made to undertake this ritual usually did it partly or completely nude. Because she was a woman, Barre would have had to do this still dressed. Uh, Commerson does describe this ritual in his journal, but he doesn't make any reference to Barre's participation in it.
0: Eventually, Etoile's captain, François Chénard de la Giraudet, was obligated to investigate the rumors about a woman on board his ship. Apart from it being unlawful for anyone to bring a woman on board, the rumors and efforts to figure out whether they were true were clearly causing a disruption. According to his logs, he questioned Barré about her gender, and she told him that she was a eunuch, framing it in terms of the men who guarded the Ottoman Empire.
1: This seems to have at least temporarily stopped the suspicion, or at least reined in the sailors' harassment of her to try to figure out if she was a woman in disguise, The Ottoman Empire's implementation of slavery included enslaving Christian men, although this practice was, at least officially, ended before this voyage was taking place. But horror stories about it still circulated in a lot of Europe, and the idea of being captured and enslaved and then castrated by the Ottoman Empire was frightening and disturbing. That probably led to the sailors treating Barre with a little more kindness than they had before.
0: After this interrogation, the captain did put a stop to Barre sleeping in Commerson's quarters. From that point, Barre was always armed, especially when she slept or went ashore to gather specimens. Commerson was frequently ill and he had an abscess on his leg that didn't want to heal, so it was often Barré and not Commerson who was doing the botany work on shore. And she was often doing it without him or anyone else to protect her.
1: The plants that they collected in the earlier part of this voyage included the one that they named Bougainvillea spectabilis, or the Great Bougainvillea, which is named, of course, for Bougainville, the the commander of this expedition. It's still cultivated a lot as an ornamental plant today. It has very lovely blossoms, and Barret was likely the person who gathered it.
0: Others aboard the Etoile eventually discovered Jeune Barret's sex, but accounts disagree on exactly when this happened or how, and we're going to get into that after we have one more little sponsor break. <music>
1: Antoine de Bougainville wrote the account that's most often cited as far as how Jean Barret was discovered to be a woman. This isn't just because he was in command of the whole expedition and was one of the most prominent people on it. It's also because unlike the authors of all the other accounts, he later edited his journals into a book and had them published. His account of the discovery is noted as having been written on May 28th or 29th, 1768, about six weeks after the expedition left Tahiti, which was the first time that the French had actually seen this island.
0: Bougainville writes that some business called him over to the Etoile and, quote, I had an opportunity of verifying a very singular fact. For some time, there was a report in both ships that the servant of Monsieur de Commerson named Barret, was a woman. His shape, voice, beardless chin, and scrupulous attention of not changing his linen or making the natural discharges in the presence of anyone, besides several other signs, had given rise to and kept up this suspicion."
1: He went on to describe Barret as an expert botanist who had worked alongside Comerson with, quote, so much courage and strength that the naturalist had called him his beast of burden. He went on to write, quote, A scene which passed at Tahiti
0: changed this suspicion into certainty. Monsieur de Commerson went on shore to botanize there. Barret had hardly set his feet on shore with the herbal under his arm when the men of Tahiti surrounded him, cried out, It is a woman! and wanted to give her the honors customary in the isle. The Chevalier de Bernard, who was upon guard on shore, was obliged to come to her assistance and escort her to the boat.
1: Okay the honors customary to the isle that he is referring to, we should clarify, the French had virtually no experience with Pacific Island cultures at this point, and they really widely misinterpreted a lot of actions and gestures as being an offer or an expectation of sex, and this includes ceremonial gifts of cloth, which were given wrapped around a woman or a girl's body, along with various dances, and a general acceptance of nudity as being socially acceptable, Also, Bougainville's writing about Tahiti and Tahitians in his journal really spread a highly romanticized idea of the island and reinforced the idea of the, quote, noble savage that was being spread at the time by romantic writers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau.
0: According to Bougainville, the discovery changed the tone of Barre's relationship to the rest of the crew. Quote, After that period, it was difficult to prevent the sailors from alarming her modesty. When I came on board the Etoile, Barre, with her face bathed in tears, owned to me that she was a woman. She said that she had deceived her master at Rochefort by offering to serve him in men's clothes at the very moment when he was embarking. That she had already before served a Geneva gentleman at Paris in quality of a valet. That being born in Burgundy and become an orphan, the loss of a lawsuit had brought her to a distressed situation. And inspired her with the resolution to disguise her sex. That she well knew when she embarked that we were going round the world and that such a voyage had raised her curiosity
1: although Bougainville had grounds to be angry with both Commerson and Barret because they had been deceiving everyone on board and her presence on the ship was unlawful, he finishes his account of what happened in a way that's relatively respectful, at least for part of it. After alluding to this trip around the world, he wrote, quote, "'She will be the first woman that ever made it, and I must do her the justice to affirm that she has always behaved on board with the most scrupulous modesty.'" And then it gets into the part that's maybe less respectful. Quote, she is neither ugly nor handsome and is no more than 26 or 27 years of age. It must be owned that if the two ships had been wrecked on any desert isle in the ocean, Barret's fate would have been a very singular one.
0: Another account also connects the discovery of her sex to Tahiti, or at least to a Tahitian person. A man named Ahutoru, who was a chieftain's brother, learned French while the expedition was in Tahiti and asked to be taken to France when they departed he described Barre as mahu, which is a term used in several Pacific Island cultures to signify a third gender. After colonization by European powers, in many places that term took on a disparaging connotation connected to cross-dressing and that being a, a pejorative term. Ahutoru died of smallpox before the voyage got back to France, however.
1: But most of the other accounts place this discovery of Jeanne's sex later, in July of 1768, on the island of New Ireland in Papua New Guinea, not in May in Tahiti. The ship's log for July 18, 1768, reads, quote, "...the physician Monsieur Commerson's domestic was discovered to be a girl who until now passed as a boy."
0: Ship surgeon Francois Vives wrote about several moments in Barret's time on board in his journals. He wrote of rumors about a woman in disguise, and then the captains putting a stop to Barret sleeping in Commerçant's cabin. He writes as though he was present when the captain interrogated Barret and that she said she was a eunuch. This account of the discovery includes a reference to a body song about a woman named Geneton, who is accosted by four men in a field, suggesting that some of the crew may have physically assaulted her to figure out her sex.
1: Yeah, most of his writing about her comes off as pretty gross. The prince of nassau siegen who was on board as a paying passenger, also alluded to the discovery of Barre's sex and said, quote, I want to give her all the credit for her bravery, a far cry from the gentle pastimes afforded her sex. She dared confront the stress, the dangers, and everything that happened that one could realistically expect on such a voyage. Her adventure should, I think, be included in a history of famous women.
0: Altogether, these other accounts suggest that Jeanne Barret was discovered to be a woman almost a month after Bougainville reported in his book. It's not clear whether he fiddled with the timeline to take suspicion off of himself in some way, or if this was just a matter of where it seemed to fit while the journal was being edited.
1: Regardless, though, afterward, Barret continued dressing in masculine attire. That was what she had with her, but she stopped binding her chest after her identity was known. For his part, Carmersong claimed that he was totally surprised with this entire revelation, writing that Beret was, quote, a courageous young woman who, taking the clothing and temperament of a man and the curiosity and audacity to circumnavigate the world, accompanied us without us knowing it. Uh, I think he might have been covering his own tail there. He really, <laughs> uh, it is I mean, just bordering all on impossible that he would not have recognized her. And this whole thing really did play out as just him hiring a random person at the dock. Like, that just, it's so far-fetched. And he just seems to have kept up with this, wow, that turned out to be a woman? I didn't have any idea.
0: Again, checklist, reasonable deniability.
1: Uh, Bougaville's
0: expedition left New Ireland on July 26, 1768. By December, they had traveled across the Indian Ocean toward the eastern coast of Africa. On December twelfth, the ships left a small island now known as Mauritius, which was then a French colony known as Ile-de-France. They left without Barret or Commerçant on board. Commerson had been released from the expedition. The ship's astronomer left at that time as well.
1: On Mauritius, Commerson and Beret continued to live together and pursue their botanical work. This included making an expedition to the island of Madagascar and documenting various things on Mauritius. The island's governor was another botanist, a man named Pierre Plov, who had become friends with them. And it's pretty likely that Bougainville thought that it was best that they both be off the ship. And that a French colony with a friendly governor who was also a botanist made Mauritius the best situation they could probably find to accomplish getting them off the ship. Commerson and
0: Barret lived together on Mauritius for about five years. At first, they lived with Poivre at the governor's residence, but when he was recalled to France, they had to find their own lodgings. Commerson had been chronically ill for much of their time together, and his condition worsened in the early 1770s. He died in 1773, leaving Barret without protection or support.
1: So, Barret once again found work, first working at a tavern and then running one. On May 17, 1774, she married a non-commissioned officer named Jean Dubarnon. And by that point, she'd been on Mauritius for seven years. It's not clear exactly when Barret returned to
0: France. But when she did, that last leg of the journey made her the first woman known to have circumnavigated the globe.
1: Bougainville intervened on her behalf after she got back to France to make sure she wouldn't be punished for her time aboard ship and a point in her favor in his doing this was that he didn't think that her example would inspire other women to do something similar. He thought she'd just be the only woman ever to circumnavigate the globe and that, quote, her example is not likely to be contagious. This line of logic really reminds me of the way that people talked about Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz and how her becoming a nun was gonna keep her from inspiring other women to be similarly iconoclastic in their behavior. Uh, instead, the opposite... Uh, wound up happening to being punished. The French Ministry of Marine recognized her work with the expedition and awarded her a pension of 200 livres per year. And then she also secured the money that Commerson had left her in his will, although by that point, his death was long enough in the past that she didn't live in his house for a year.
0: Not much is known about Jeanne Barré's last years. She did not get to do the cataloging of the collection that Commerçon had hoped she would. Everything that they had collected on Bougainville's expedition and afterward was either in storage or impounded after Conversant's death. However, since the unorganized collection was not well known or associated with a prominent member of the nobility, it made it through the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. Today, at least 6,000 specimens survive in museum collections, including the French National Museum of Natural History, part of which is on the site of the former Royal Gardens.
1: Yeah, a lot of that stuff still has its original uh, handwritten labeling that was probably written by her. Jean bore died in saint France on August 5, 1807, and left her remaining property to Commerzons' heirs. She was 67.
0: We know so little about Commerson's feelings towards her. He named a plant after her during the expedition, calling it Barretia bonifidia, although it turned out to be a species that had already been discovered and named. And he wrote of her very fondly. Here is a sample cited in a biography published in 1993. Quote, Armed with a bow like Diana, armed with intelligence and seriousness like Minerva, she eluded the snare of animals and men, not without many times risking her life and her honor.
1: He also praised her for doing all of this risky and difficult work without complaint. He did also call her his beast of burden, but he did that while trying to maintain this ruse that she was a man. And that really doesn't seem like a weird way for a man to talk about his male assistant at the time. Although the plant that Commerson named after her didn't stick, Barre did have a species permanently named for her in 2012. That was Solanum beritae, which is part of a large and diverse plant genus that also includes the nightshades, This particular species was selected to bear her name because of its leaves, which are really variable in their shape and size. This was also true of the species that Commerson had originally named after her, because he thought this variability really reflected her life and her character, and like the fact that she had uh, disguised herself as a man for so long, and and taken on uh, so many jobs that were really unexpected for women at the time.
0: Uh, my two cents are, are that that is such a thoughtful way to look at the selection of her plant species that he wanted to be named for her that it does suggest a very genuine affection between the two of them.
1: Yeah, her relationship with him definitely started as his hiring her to do work, but a lot of their life together, they really seem to live basically as common law spouses not so much as employer and employee, especially once they were off the expedition and she was no longer officially on his payroll, but they were continuing to live together, essentially, as a couple. Uh, I feel like her story is pretty complicated. There's, It's clear that she went through so much difficulty and, and possibly even violence while on that expedition, um, but also the fact that she was from really the poorest class of people where she was living and a woman and was able to go on this round-the-world voyage, which was just a whole, like, universe away from the possibilities that were open to people in that same situation. This is really incredible to me. She sounds
0: uh, kind of spectacular. That's a person I would use the time machine to go back and talk to.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> do you have a little bit of listener mail for us?
1: I do. It's from Alyssa, and it's titled, "Hovita Idar, Rebel Latina Activist Teacher... And Alyssa writes, I saw a small video on Idar, which I've left linked in the bottom, and was greatly intrigued by her because she's from my hometown. I looked her up, but I feel like my research on her would not do her memory justice. I love hearing your pieces on strong women and their, quote, unnatural ways for their time. I hope you all can help bring Jovita Idar to life, not just for me, but because she's just a kick-ass Latina woman that deserves her name to be rung. Your podcast gotten me through workouts, long trips, and work shifts. Speaking of which, I've been caught a handful of times by customers while listening to your podcast, my favorite of these times being while listening to Marie Laurence. I believe the line was about her fiancé, and all the customer heard was erotic novels, and then I paused it, and then there is like the laughing emoji. Thank you again for your work and dedication to the show. I hope Hovita makes it on the list soon. Best wishes, Alyssa. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for this email. I don't know if Hovita will make it onto the show because a quick search found that the information available on her is a little thin. That doesn't mean no. It means it might just take a while uh, to gather enough resources or maybe a Six Impossible Episodes entry at some point. I think we'll be due for one of those uh, before the end of the year. So thank you again, Alyssa, for sending this. I love that story about uh, being overheard by a customer and being like, well, that was just totally the wrong time for maybe a customer to walk in on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com and find the episodes of our show. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else to you get your podcasts. Stuffy You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.